Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey, frontline friends, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after years working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to let you know that registration for the Self-Care Dare five-day challenge for first responders and frontline workers opens today. Find our podcast page by googling Behind the Line Lindsay and you'll find the link to register on the podcast's main page or in the show notes for today's episode. Those who register will join us when the D.A.R.E. kicks off on June 29th. You'll get access to daily videos covering five key domains of self-care, tons of bonus worksheets and ideas for developing a rock-solid self-care plan, our private Facebook group where we can connect, problem-solve, and celebrate, and prizes along the way to keep you motivated and invested in doing this work for you and for the benefit of those who care about you. This segues well into our conversation today. Today, we're talking about the challenges of experiencing life on the front lines and then transitioning into parent mode. I'm so excited to be joined today by Heather Toes, who's an advocate for self-care practices recognizing that we can't be our best parent selves when we aren't having our own needs met. We can't pour from an empty cup, so to speak. Heather's speaking to our topic today from a couple of different vantage points. She's a clinical counselor who works with kids and families and holds a clinical lens for supporting parents. That said, she's also a parent who has navigated the difficulty of balancing frontline work with being a mom to her daughter. When her daughter was young, Heather worked as a child protection social worker and faced her own experiences of burnout as well as a ton of exposure to extremely hard situations in her work. Heather later shifted to working in adoption social work where she developed keen interest in supporting families whose child had experienced trauma. And she wanted to make a proactive difference in the lives of families, which led her to move into counseling as well as in developing the Trauma-Attuned Parenting Program, which is currently under development to be launched as an online course for parents wanting to develop skills to be therapeutic supports and active participants in healing trauma for their child or children. The link to Heather's website and the Trauma-Attuned Parenting Program can be found in the show notes for today's episode, and I really hope you'll check her out and share her resource to those you know who are working to support a child through trauma. For today, Heather and I are talking about the difficult balancing act of trying to be our best at work as well as with our kids. We talk about how the work impacts our parenting and skills to support being more meaningfully connected with our kids in spite of the toll of the work. Welcome, Heather. It's so great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. And I wanted to start by just kind of like, letting you have a bit of a space to talk about what it is that your background has looked like and and what brings you to our conversation today around being a first responder or frontline worker parent. Oh, well, thank you so much, Lindsay, for having me. I'm super excited to be here and just felt super honored that you would even ask me. Um, So where do I start? Well, I guess um, I am a wife and a mother first and foremost. I've been married for 26 years 
and yeah. uh, my daughter is 22 years old. And I began my career as a social worker, um, having worked in helping professions prior to that, but began my career as a social worker when my daughter was about five years old. And, okay. uh, and then transitioned um, from child protection into the adoption field, um, still as a social worker, and then eventually um, as a clinical counselor. Wow. Yeah. So can you share with us a little bit about some of that journey for you personally? Like um, many of those listening kind of experienced some of the adrenaline roller coaster and the seeing hard things and the being exposed um, to firsthand trauma as well as vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue and things of that nature. Um, and my hunch is given some of your background that you may have some amount of experience in some of those pieces and the bridging of your own experience to your own parenting, um, and relationships in terms of transitioning into family life at the end of your work day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I would say, you know, on my hardest days, uh, this work, particularly, I'll, I'll maybe speak from the point of a social, social worker at this point, um, it led me to feeling completely depleted and burnt out. Um, in mm -hmm. fact, I, I would say I experienced absolute burnout about four and a half years into my career as a child protection worker. Yeah. And, you know, on those hardest days, like, I would come home, hug my daughter a little tighter. Um, I'd be exhausted, feel like I had very little emotional energy to give my family. Or sometimes I was just so infuriated about the injustices I would experience and I would come home and I would like vent them all out and mm -hmm. feeling like I was burdening my family with the heaviness of my work. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it, it was really hard work and still, you know, as a therapist can be hard work as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's like layers of that kind of regardless of the specific career that you're in. Mm -hmm. I think no matter what, every helping profession has some amount of exposure. Um, I know uh, we have been doing a series prior to this, this series we're starting on, on families and the impact of families, we just finished a series on daring leadership. And we were talking about some of the challenges in terms of um, the job itself, the actual direct to client aspect of the job as a social worker, as a police officer, like whatever, whatever the nature of the work is, that part's hard enough. But then we also face these very real systemic level challenges that are like fighting a battle on either front. Like we're stretched so far between the, the actual nature of the work being so very difficult and exposing. And then these like bureaucratic systems level pieces that, that can be um, just really, really powerful in terms of their impact on our lives and the sense of kind of hopelessness and helplessness to really being able to do the work as meaningfully well as we'd like to be able to do it. And I imagine working in child protection, as well as within adoption, that likely that's been a facet of your experience as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's probably what has propelled my career. Um, you know, I mean, we all go into this profession because we want to help people um, and are drawn, um, you know, to that um, you know, idea of wanting to make an impact. And, and certainly I, 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 I know that I have made an impact. I was going to say, I, I would like to believe, but no, I know. In fact, I just had a client, um, reach out to me on Facebook. She, she like mm. tracked me down and, uh, she was probably in my first year as the social worker. I worked with her and I worked with her over an extended period of time, but she yeah. was like, thank you so much for kicking me in my butt and not believing my lies and yeah. just like pushing me forward. And so that's like, that's the stuff we live for, but we don't always see that immediately. Right. Right. 
And so, you know, I mean, I often say that's why I do things like, you know, I like organizing or I like, um, you know, doing a craft or something like that because I can see an end product where with a lot of our work, we don't see the end product. We hope for the end product, but we may not even be like, you know, as an intake worker, you're passing them off to a family service worker or a guardianship worker to kind of continue your work. And so I imagine the same with, you know, paramedics and, and nurses and, you know, you're kind of in their life for this little period of time. You see them in their crisis point and then might be moving them along. And that's a, that's a hard thing to carry because you don't see the resolution. And so, yeah. And then when you're getting maybe the brunt of, um, you know, police officers, social workers, you know, who are, or Mm -hmm. mental health workers, you know, who are getting the brunt of, you know, the worst challenges, um, it's a lot to carry even like emotionally or in our bodies because, you know, I often talk about, I have this part of me that turns on that goes into this crisis mode and it's almost like I shut off this emotional part in order to even function and do what I need to do. But then oftentimes what happens afterwards is you're coming off that adrenaline. And so there's that toll, that physical toll that it takes on your body. But, um, but emotionally, you know, you may be processing a bunch of things in your mind as to like, did I do that the way I wanted to do it? Was there something I could have done differently? Oh man, that person really freaked out on me and now it's really settling in, you know? So there's a lot we carry. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's this piece that then, um, so within the work, we kind of know to some extent that that's what we've signed up for. I think we don't totally recognize when we start in these kinds of careers that we're signing up for the systems level bureaucratic BS mm. as well. I, I don't think we fully understand the complexity of that um, higher level systems piece when we start out. But I think we know that like, if I'm going into work as a social worker, that I'm going to be confronted with really hard stories. If I go into work as a paramedic, I'm going to be confronted with really graphic scenes. If I go into work as a firefighter, you know, like each and every one of these professions, we have a bit of a sense of what we're walking into in terms of the work itself. But I think that we can fail to recognize the long-term consequences um, of engaging in that day after day after day and letting other people's worst days be our Tuesday, right? And that that then has an effect in terms of what we come home and believe about the world and about what it means to exist with our own families. So I guess I'm curious, like given your experience as, as having been a parent who has done frontline work, but also from the position of being a therapist who works with families, is what stands out to you as the challenges facing parents who work on the front lines all day and then come home to their families? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, emotional energy, as I think I've brought up, is a huge part of it, right? And what our work involves. So putting aside the things that we experience during the day and are impacted by, it can be very challenging. And the demands of being a parent doesn't change, right? So trying to meet these demands with maybe little emotional energy and often physical energy can be a really big challenge. Totally. One of the other things I think about when, you know, and, and this is maybe more of my like bad parenting moments or what I, what I <laughs> perceived as those. We all have that, them. Yeah. Which is sometimes the things that, you know, my daughter would maybe request of me. It seems so trivial compared to what I have just experienced during the day. So I wrote down a couple examples. You know, my my kid wants new clothes. When a kid I just removed is going to their new home with next to nothing, you know, or um, my kid complains about a limit I set when I just interviewed a kid that's being like horribly abused, right? Like, so it's like, really, you're upset with me because I'm telling you, you can't go to the mall with your friends. Are you kidding me? Do you know what other parents do? You know, so we can kind of get into that little bit of a like weighing, you know, what we're doing with our kids or what our kids are requesting and what, you know, we're seeing out there in the world. So that's just in my profession. I, I can't imagine, you know, even in other professions, how that might happen. Yeah. 
And then I was also just had to think about, and this isn't something I haven't necessarily had to, um, had to work with, but those who work shift work, you know, being your best after long shifts or odd schedules, like it's, it's challenging to be your best self after those Mm -hmm. moments. And yet the importance of building routines and structure for the time that we do have together with our family can kind of offset some of that. So trying our best to make this time that we do have with our kids really predictable because it's what's unknown that is most challenging for our kids, right? Totally, totally. I found one of the other challenges that I have had in on my mind quite a lot actually came up in my parenting life yesterday Um, And it's this piece about how our work exposes us to aspects of the world that then make us a bit more vigilant as parents. So yesterday, um, it was the weekend, and uh, we had a leak in our kitchen ceiling. So we had to pull down a bunch of ceiling drywall. There was dust everywhere. It was super gross. My husband had to run to the hardware store to pick up some pieces to fix the issue. Um, and we had pre-planned that my kids and our next door neighbors who are, their kids are the exact same ages as our kids, that they were going to have a play in the backyard. So I had said, you know what, you guys can still have that play. I can hear you out the window, but I have to stay inside and clean up. The deal is you have to stay in our backyard. So I look out the window every couple of minutes and I look out one time and they're not there. And I am like, what? Like, what is happening? (laughs) So I go out the front of my house and lo and behold, they've wandered around to the front of the house because they're going to go over to the next door neighbors to grab a couple of toys. They're going to bring them back. Like they think that they've got it all figured out. And I'm snippy. Like I'm like, I said in the backyard, like (laughs) this is what needs to happen. And they're looking at me like the next door neighbor's kid looks at me like I'm crazy. And I'm (laughs) And I probably a little bit am because in my head, I'm like, you guys don't understand. Like, this is where children get abducted. This is where you get hit by a car. This is where a dog bites you. Like this, I can't keep you safe out here. Somehow our backyard is magically safer. You know, like there's just these, and I did, I ended the play date early because I was so frustrated at how it happened repeatedly. Like I kept asking, you guys have to stay in the backyard. They kept going between places. And so finally I'm like, scrap it. You guys can't be trusted. And mommy's not okay with this. <laughs> and it's really about my stress and discomfort as opposed to their actual capacity to navigate the situation. But it's, it's real for me because in my head, I'm like, you don't know the seven stories that I've heard in the last week about X, Y, and Z. Absolutely. Right? And it's just like a random moment. Well, I think my daughter would quite um, connect with what you just shared yeah. because seriously, I mean, if it wasn't like not allowed, I would have like background checked every person my kid was going to go to. I promise you, I didn't do that. It wasn't allowed. <laughs> but I wanted to. But I sure. wanted to. And I was the person who would be like, okay, do they have any older brothers? Who's going to be at the house? Yes. Who's going to, you know, like, and, and that's, you know, from my experiences. Right. And so yeah. I actually really had to work on that over, over time. And obviously when she was younger, I was probably even more cautious because does she have the capacity to then report back to me, you know, stuff like that. So as she, you know, developed, as I developed trust in having taught her kind of the warning signs and, you know, how to stand up for herself and all of that kind of stuff, then, you know, I considered it managed risk, right? So, um, yeah, just, so just like, recognizing we cannot provide absolute safety for our kids at all times, even if they are in our own backyard, right? I know, right? (laughs) Then, um, you know, how can I manage that risk? How can I mitigate that risk? And, um, and then also teaching my, my own kid how to like, listen to her gut and trusting Mm -hmm. that I've taught her well. Yeah. Was a huge, that was a huge part. And, and yeah, like she, you know, honestly, she didn't do sleepovers with people I didn't know. I mean, there are certain things that, that we gain understanding of that maybe other parents don't. And I'm totally okay that she didn't have those sleepovers. 
right? I don't think her childhood was totally messed up. I just chose who she could have sleepovers with. They were with the families where I knew those families well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. fair. Well, and I think that those are the pieces, right? Is to some extent, I don't think we can prevent ourselves from being shaped by the experiences we have. No. Right. And I, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing that, you know, our exposure actually does allow us to be a bit differently conscientious in guiding safety for our kids in ways that, you know, parents who aren't exposed in the same ways may not have. Um, certainly it comes with a different degree of anxiety for us though. Cause I think that we also like see risk in a far higher degree than it necessarily is. Um, and I think we probably have a different amount of difficulty trusting that our kids have learned the things that we hoped for them to learn to for secure sure. themselves. Um, because it's hard. It's hard to trust when you have seen the bad things happen. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing, curious, what are some of the key ways that you think we can work on developing skills to be more present with our families? Like, I think that's one of the things I hear quite a lot from frontline workers is that you know, I've spent all day in this like heightened risk Mm -hmm. place. And then I come home and I do have some of that vigilance. I also have some of that like adrenaline roller coastery stress response stuff that's been part of my day, coming down off the day, making the transition into my home, and then really being able to enjoy being in my home with my family connected with my kids feels hard. um, And that will often oscillate uh, from being like numb and disconnected to being like hyper-connected, but in like an angry or overreactive or um, reactive kind of way. So are there ways that you think we can work on developing skills to just kind of transition yeah. more smoothly and be more present with our families? Absolutely. So I think having a ritual of disconnecting from work and transitioning yeah. to home is super important. And this can be yeah. even if you're working in your home, okay? Because I know many, mm-hmm. many of us who have that yeah. capacity um, have that have that issue. So if you are, say, driving home, um, taking that extra five minutes in your car to have some yeah. alone time to even just breathe or to listen to that extra song on the radio or whatever it might be, um, can be super helpful blasting your music you know mm-hmm. on your drive home or I even often will take time to drive in silence um, yeah. I actually find that to be more of a meditative process for me where I just breathe um, mm-hmm. as when I'm stressed that my that's the first thing for me to get affected is my breath and so oftentimes yeah. I even get in the car and I'm just like oh my gosh I'm not even breathing and so I will just start <laughs> by taking some deep belly breaths Mm-hmm. Um, if you have, um, the capacity, um, to do a little bit of meditation or a mindfulness kind of practice, whether that's listening to a meditation, you know, on one of the apps out there, um, yeah. or, um, just simply being present in whatever you're doing for even five minutes, um, it can make a huge difference as to how you reenter your family. Or if you have the luxury of time and you don't live too far away from work, maybe just take the long road home, right? So that's just one way of like disconnecting. Yeah. I've worked with a lot of um, like beginning therapists and kind of teaching them kind of a process uh, or a ritual of discharging the events from Mm. the day or from one client to the next. And so I, I refer to it as a cleansing ritual. Um, It's kind of a way that I would maybe move from one client to the next without bringing the stuff from my previous client into my next client. And I could see that being really helpful, even just to move throughout the day because that adrenaline rush can keep going. And so even having something where, you know, it's a little mantra you say in between, like, you know, that call is over, that person is safe, time for the next call, you know, Um, or it can be an end of the day ritual, like changing your clothes and kind of like literally shedding your work off of you or leaving your work shoes outside the door and kind of acknowledging this is work. I'm now stepping in to home. Um, or I, my best example was of a mom who had a kid who just had a terrible experience in kindergarten. And so she would pick Mm -hmm. her up every day at lunch. Um, and wouldn't, this is back in the day when it was all day kindergarten and she would get her to shake out 
all of the yuckies from the day. And so like just a, you know, a, an actual yeah. physical kind of experience of shaking it off and yeah. moving into the next thing. Um, mm. Another thing, just a mantra, you know, work stays at work. I'm home now. Um, I highly, highly recommend debriefing with your colleagues if you have that capacity before you come home so yeah. that you have kind of worked through that thing and then you come home and I actually have a have a rule with my husband where I do like a five minute vent about my mm -hmm. day and so I actually you know have had this conversation with him like please don't let me go on longer than that yeah. um so really coach him and recognizing that if I keep talking about work I'm still at work yeah. Right. Totally. And so, um, and also just being really aware that if we do bring this home to our partners, I believe you said it earlier, like not everybody has the capacity to carry what we've been carrying all day. And there is yes. a very real risk of vicarious trauma. And so yeah. being very conscious of that. Mm -hmm. um, I also just want to talk very specifically about our kiddos, right? Because yeah. I found it really useful to also have a ritual of connection with my mm. daughter. So that might be a greeting that we share um, as I pick her up or come home to her. And that really reminds me like I'm here with her now and I'm inviting yeah. her into my presence. So that means like the phone goes away when I get through the door. It's really, mm. and the same thing goes with my husband too, not just with my daughter, but like the phone yeah. goes away because otherwise I could be like checking that last email that I sent or did they respond yet or whatever. Oh, and then I'm yeah. not even mentally present with them. Right. Yeah. Um, playfulness is a great way for us to connect with our kids. And it's also mm -hmm. a very good therapeutic strategy to manage difficult emotions. So what we often recommend in the therapy world is do the opposite of what you're feeling, right? So if you're feeling really stressful, moving to playfulness or silliness can be a great way to bring lightness in, into our interactions with our kids, but also to ourselves. Um, I love that one. Yeah. I love that one. And one of the things I think I've been learning with my own kids is, um, I mean, I, I, as a therapist have this idea in my mind as a parent that I want to do like child led play all of the time, but my stressed brain self actually cannot handle that because what my kids want to play is not fun to me. Like I, I struggle to get into that a little bit more. Um, and so while there are times where when I'm in my best self mode, child-led play, I can totally rock in my, I just got off work and I'm tired and I'm kind of grumpy and the world sucks and I hate everything kind of mode. I have learned to have some specific types of play that I know my kids enjoy. They wouldn't probably choose it as their first choice, but if I suggest it and I seem quite keen about it, they'll engage super well with it. Um, so like my daughter loves puzzles um, and she loves, she calls it tea time. So we set up the table with a puzzle and we each have a cup of tea and we just sip our tea and half the time it's actually chocolate milk and we do our puzzle. And, you know, she would probably not, if I came home and said, we'll play anything you want, she would probably not choose puzzle. But if I said, you know, mommy's had a really long day, I would love to have tea time and a puzzle. She would be like all for it. So it's a way for us to connect and bond and be present together, but on a little bit more my terms, yeah. but in a way that still invites her to participate in that. So like kind of strategic play, I have like a list of things that I know my kids enjoy doing that I also enjoy doing that if I suggest we can make that work, even when my brain doesn't feel like it's ready to do all of the kiddish things. That's beautiful. I love that. And you know what, even making a list of uh, these pleasurable activities that the two of you yeah. can enjoy together. And then even if, if it's a matter of like, okay, I know I don't have a lot of energy to do the thing that I know that they would maybe classically pick, you know, whether yeah. it's playing chase around the house or hide and seek or, you know, that kind of stuff. 
Um, then even saying like, Hey, do you want to pick a, do you want to pick an activity off of the list? Right. Because you know, then that that's, that's something that you would, you would be open to doing. Um, or maybe you give three choices, right. And again, they, they have a choice, but really you nailed it. You said like kids want to be invited into our presence and they love that. That's what that connecting part, like, so leave all the requests about homework or what happened that day with them or whatever until you have connected with your kids. Um, Super important because just as much as we need a transition time, our kids also need a transition time. Totally, Mm -hmm. totally. So I feel like this kind of links to the next question that I have for you, which is, do you think that there are conversations that need to be had as a family about what it means to do work on the front lines and the ways this might show up in the family or have an impact on the family? Um, And what are some ways that we can engage kids in these kinds of conversations in age appropriate kind of conscientious ways that might allow them to understand how the transition is hard for us and how we're working on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say, you know, my daughter would quite readily tell you like that we started having conversations with her super early. I should mention my husband is a probation officer. (laughs) So we have like helping professionals in our house and she probably learned about things far earlier than she ever would have asked about them. Um, And so even just having an awareness about some of the things that we're confronted with, you know, so we were having conversations about addiction, domestic violence, safety, like, and again, why we might be more cautious as parents, but it also gave her an awareness as to some of the struggles that we might encounter in our day. And so, yeah, like I, I have always been very open with my daughter, you know, and yet it is age appropriate. And that's really important to understand because like that whole vicarious trauma thing, um, we also recognize like our kids hear stories out in the world. And as I was, you know, kind of preparing for this talk, I was thinking about like, wow, like police officers and firefighters, like those kids have very real fears about what, um, you know, what their parents are encountering um, on an everyday basis. And, and so, yeah, so my, my conversation with my daughter changed as she grew. So when she was six, I might have said, you know, I help kids to be safe and support parents Mm -hmm. to meet their kids needs. And then when she's 10, I might say, you know, sometimes I have to move kids out of unsafe situations, even away from their parents who might be hurting them or who are unable to keep them safe or care for them, Mm -hmm. you know, and so you can see it's a progression and, and just, I want, it's really helpful um, for kids also to have like an age appropriate job description of what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, you know, as our kids get older and have access to more information, they may also have more questions. And I would really encourage you not to shy away from answering your kids' questions because in reality, the things that they make up in our in their heads is often far worse than anything we could tell them. Totally. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. It's funny. My So my son is turning seven soon. Um I feel like he's like the most insightful kid I've ever met in my life. Um, And I'm not just speaking that from the like proud mama space, but like (laughs) legit, he asks solid questions. And we've actually had feedback from his teachers for the last couple of years about like, so we were talking about residential schools today. Isaiah had a lot of questions (laughs) and like dominated the conversation about how this feels unfair and unjust and all of these pieces. But it's funny because since he was probably two, I've talked about how mommy helps sad people feel happy again, that that's mommy's job. Um, And for sure that's expanded and grown over time. And he's asked some really interesting questions. He's currently quite upset with me because he realized that I charge money for this. And he thinks that that's (laughs) so extraordinarily not okay um, that we should just help people because we're kind. Um, and so it's just super interesting to like navigate the like, right, but this is still how we feed ourselves friend. Uh, (laughs) but like, it's been, it's been fascinating to see his questions about different kinds of issues. And, and one of the things he was asking me about not too long ago, um, was in connection to someone he knew at school who had had a really hard time and his, um, one parent was going to jail and, Um, I said something to the effect of like, you know, mommy helps families like that. And he looked at me with this face that was like, 
what? Like, really? That's the thing you do? And I'm like, right. So like, you don't really know the fullness of what I do. And so it's these like little windows in to like, yeah, that's a part of mummy's day is things like that. Um, and when you see that mummy is maybe kind of like low or doesn't have as much energy some days, it's a little bit because mummy helps with really heavy stories like this that you're talking about. Um, and so kind of bridging from things that he knows about, mm -hmm. things he's curious about and is kind of questioning around to things that are real in my experience to try to help him recognize how, you know, mummy's harder days look like that for a reason. And it's, it's, I find it helpful for him in part because I think it helps him detangle that from being about him. Right. Absolutely. When mommy got low energy, it's not because she doesn't want to have fun with me. It's not because she doesn't wish that she could be more present and connected to me. It's that she's had some hard stories that day and that has nothing to do with me or my amount of worthness to being played with and connected to in ways that she might want to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah, we are not superwoman or superman. Like we, you know, we can only carry so much and there are times when we are going to bring it home. And so if we have the capacity and it's not just like after a blow up or whatever that we maybe didn't expect ourselves to do, you know, prepping our kids for what we might need on a particular hard day, like, Hey, mommy needs to have a little bit of a nap before we can play together or you know that kind of thing but if we don't catch it this is also just a great learning experience and a great time yeah. for us to do what I would refer to as a circle back um, okay. and that means going back to our kids taking ownership over our own behavior apologizing letting them know it wasn't about you <laughs> And then taking steps to ensure that we're not repeating patterns, right? Maybe that means, okay, yeah, I need to do some of those cleansing rituals or disconnecting rituals that, you know, I had talked about earlier, or I need to, it means employing some of our self-care strategies, right? Like what are we doing yeah. to actually take care of ourselves? Because that oxygen mask, you know, idea is, is very real. Like we can't do what we need to do with our kids if we are not taking care of ourselves. Yeah. Totally. I mean, of all of the jobs in the world, parenting is this job that demands so much of us, right? Like showing up in all of the moments. Mm -hmm. And I think certainly the amount of stress we see for stay-at-home parents is incredibly high and really speaks to the fact that parenting is a very tough job. And so when you are trying to show up and parent well, but also from the place of a working parent who works in a job that also in, is incredibly depleting. Um, it really does remind us that we need to be incredibly intentional mm -hmm. about ensuring our own wellness and stability in order to be able to give to all of those spaces, yeah. right? Or else we end up giving from this empty cup. Um, and we've talked about this on the show a couple of times before this idea of like an emotional bank account that, um, we talked about that a little bit when we talked about self-care and mindfulness early in the show. Um, this idea that if we don't invest something into ourselves on a very regular basis, but we want to give generously to all of these other people in our lives, we end up in the red really, really quickly because we're giving, but we haven't invested anything to make up that difference. And so how do we be intentional about, you know, replacing and uh, saving up some of our own wellness so that we have something to give from? Well, and that's so critical. You're absolutely, absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it's why, even you know, I was, we haven't even touched on the fact that some of us may not have very easy at home experiences with our kids. Maybe our kids are struggling with mental health or, you know, maybe we are parenting a child um, that um, has, you know, higher attachment needs than the average child or has experienced like trauma parenting. or, you know, I work with a lot of adoptive parents and yeah, a lot of our adoptive parents they're they're super feelers right so they feel things yeah. deeply and they end up in helping professions and frontline mm. kind of positions and so they're carrying all of that and when they get home they're still carrying it um, in yeah. a different way and so um, you know even in in my course that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit here but my trauma change parent course like we have a whole module on self-care because it is so critical if you do not care for yourself 
it doesn't matter how much you understand about what your kid needs or all the strategies in the world, you will not be able to employ them if you have not cared for yourself. Totally. Well, and it's funny. So let's talk about the course in just mm-hmm. a second. But I want to bridge to that by sharing that like today, the day that this episode is airing, we're actually opening registration for a different piece that I've been running called the Self-Care Dare. And it's a five-day challenge for first responders and frontline workers. And it's intended to be kind of like this supercharged um, experience of developing a self-care plan that can carry forward and allow for some sustainability. Um, and it's it's something that I'm really excited about. We've run it before and it was really, really influential for the people who participated in it, even though it's only five days, which was really cool to, to get to witness. Um, but I think that there is this piece of like, we come back to self-care so often talking on this show. Um, I find that I come back to self-care so often in my therapeutic work. And I recognize that for a lot of people, it's kind of this eye roll of like, you know, how much can self-care really do? Or I'm so sick of hearing the word self-care, or I just think it means having a bath. Like that's not really what it's about. Um, And it, it really is about this piece of how do we fill ourselves up to be able to give something. And one of the things I say a lot during the self-care dare is this idea that taking care of me lets me take better care of others. So if I don't take care of myself and I'm giving and giving and giving, yeah, that's super lovely and generous, except I'm giving from a place of deficit. So it's not my best self I'm giving. It's like this exhausted, snippy, grumpy self and everyone's getting a piece of that version of me so is that really like Mm -hmm. the is that really what I want them to have no I want them to have aspects of the best of me but I can only give from that place when I've grown that in myself and that comes through self-investment in things like self-care yeah and I've been working actually with a lot of frontline workers um, throughout the pandemic here um, primarily a lot of nurses and, um, and the, the toll that it takes, it's more about like, you know, you talked about like the cup analogy, you know, it's like, okay, so say I'm only holding half a cup, but how long do I have to hold that half a cup? It's eventually my arm is going to wear out no matter how heavy it is. Right. And so, um, I actually have referred clients and they've taken your course and spoke very highly of it. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate that you put that out there because it is, yeah, this condensed kind of way to really immerse yourself in, in the idea of self-care and, and take away some of those, um, old ideas of like, I got to go to the spa or I got to, you know, have yeah. like an hour to meditate or something like that. And, you know, I teach my clients, like you can do self-care in one minute, you can do self-care yeah. in five minutes, you know, like whatever time you have, Literally. I, we can find ways to do this for you because yeah, we don't yeah. all have the capacity to just go lock ourselves in the bathroom for an hour. Totally. Well, and it's super fascinating to me because certainly during the self-care dare challenge, we talk about finding creative strategies to create kind of a wraparound plan for self-care that does include anything from I have 30 seconds to I have a full weekend to go on a retreat, right? Um, Most of us don't get that regularly though. So how do we do the 30 second thing? Because I have more of that available to me, right? But It's interesting because I know when I developed the Beating the Breaking Point course, which is my my overarching course around resilience training for first responders and frontline workers, self-care is one of the core modules. And knowing about your course, the Trauma-Tuned Parenting course, the same is true. And it's really this piece that's foundational because if we're not okay, we can't help everyone else be okay. I mean, we can try for a while to run on fumes. My car will run on fumes for a little bit, but it eventually peters out and it doesn't go very well when that happens, right? And I think we've heard um, at the end of the last series that we did, we had a couple of different guests on who shared about their experience of being off work with PTSD and related mental health concerns. Like it's not sustainable. And when it's not sustainable, it just goes very, very badly Mm -hmm. for us and for those who are counting on us, which includes our families. And so why don't we talk a little bit about the Trauma Attuned Parenting Program? Why don't you share a little bit about what that is and what you're working on? Yeah, well, the Trauma Attuned Parenting Program really came out of um, during my 
uh, work as a as an adoption adoption social worker, um, I was confronted with people coming back asking for post adoption supports, like for counseling and stuff like that. And um, what I learned is that we we do our best to kind of prepare adoptive parents for um, you know working with their kiddos who have experienced trauma. But what we weren't doing a really good job of is is the follow up, like post the adoption being finalized. It's kind of like, okay, you're out in the world now, and um, you know, here we got some funds for some counseling or whatever. But but really, it's kind of like we know it's really hard to integrate knowledge when we're not actually living it. Um, yeah. So obviously, I'm not <laughs> I'm not discounting go do the education pieces beforehand. Absolutely, you need to be fully aware. But how we receive that information later on is much different and what I what I love so much about my course is that um, I developed it I'm like how many years ago now it was I think it was in 2015 so about six years now it's gone through numerous iterations um, based on feedback from participants Um, is that a lot of um, you know we ourselves um, whether it's because we're a frontline worker or because of our own childhood experiences, we have integrated our own trauma into how we parent. And so it's not just looking at, you know, here's how to parent your traumatized kid. It's also, you know, as we're understanding how trauma impacts the brain, how we, how it physiologically expresses itself, how um, relationally it shows up we find that parents are often learning about themselves in the mix and they're going, Oh, that's why I do that. Right. That's why I have that shark music or that's why I find that behavior so difficult to deal with. And so I just find it such a bridge um, to understanding, recognizing, and then having actual real strategies to implement, not as a like, just do this one thing, it's going to solve all your problems, but more of an overarching shifting your lens as to how you view your child or how you view trauma. And um, as a result, grow to have a stronger attachment and a more attuned experience with your child that will, will over time um, shift your relationship and shift their physiologically physiology, sorry, and how they, um, enter into relationship with others because healing when you've had particularly relational trauma, um, healing through relationship is really the best way to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I know that you are working on developing essentially two iterations Mm -hmm. of your trauma attuned parenting program. So as you shared, um, this all kind of started out from this adoption lens perspective um, and wanting to support families who are in the thick of that transition and figuring out how to take what they had learned previous and actually apply it once they're in the heat of it. Um, and so I know that you're cultivating a version of your program that will be accessible online and available to people that specifically uh, speaks to that group. But then I know that you're also working on a general version of that same program that is just really for any parent who is having a difficult time navigating trauma alongside their child or children. Yeah. And sometimes that might be trauma that we experienced together. I know in a recent mm-hmm. course that I ran, it was, you know, a parent who had, uh, had experienced domestic violence. Um, mm-hmm. And of course her children, you know, witnessed yeah. that or um, were impacted by that. And then other, other situations where, you know, there may be things that were totally out of our control or it can be related to, you know, our own mental health and how we weren't able to show up for our kids. And that ex- came out as a trauma for our kid and so you know this is not to shame anyone it is like there are things that we had little control over or are in the past but we want to support parents to be able to move forward and so you know I have had parents whose kids have been in care I have had parents who just want to have a better understanding about the stuff that they've been through and how it may have impacted their kid or if their kid is, has developed some mental health concerns as a result, they want to have mm-hmm. uh, a sense of like, how do I support my kid to move past this, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, and I know, I think one of the things I've loved about interacting with um, some of your work so far 
is that you really focus on this idea of how parents are a healing contributor to their child's story so that we're not just, you know, this, this parent figure that shows up and has a role, but really my role is to like take them to therapy and help them get what other supports they may need, although that can be helpful, but that as a parent, I actually have the opportunity to be therapeutic um, and that I can be empowered with skills that allow me to be more effectively therapeutic as a healing agent for my child, which I think is so fantastic because I think that we, we do have a tremendous amount of influence for our kids and we know that, but if we don't feel equipped with the skills to be able to navigate some of those specific pieces, well, we don't know how to do it. Right. And often if we do have some of our own history, we're like trying to just figure it out for ourselves, let alone figure out how to help a poor innocent child with some of that stuff as well. Um, and so I love, I love that that's work that you're doing is finding ways to equip and empower parents with some of those skill sets to really be able to be agents of change for their families. It is such a huge part of this course, honestly, um, just recognizing that, you know, sending your kid one hour a week to therapy is not going to nearly have the same effect as even you doing it imperfectly, um, for the rest of the time. Right. So we know that there are far more sparks, um, like neurons that are firing in, in your child's brain when you do the skills even like a quarter of the the way that we do them um Mm -hmm. it's just it's just that's how your kids are wired your brains are wired they are wired to connect with you not with us yeah Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's really meaningful um we are going to link to your course and some of the pieces about your page on our show notes so that others can kind of hunt that down Um, and again, you can also probably just Google Heather toes or trauma attuned parenting and navigate towards some of those pieces as well. Um, but yeah, those are fantastic resources. Thanks so much for creating them, Heather. My pleasure. Yeah. All right. I think that's all I have for questions for today. Although I want to throw that to you for a quick second and just say, is there anything else that feels kind of meaningful or that you want to shout out to before we wrap up for today? Oh, I, I think that one thing that I would just say to you is have some grace with yourself. <laughs> what we do <laughs> is hard and it's not any easier this past year. Um, and so, you know, we have been doing this for a prolonged period of time and there is, a, there is an end in sight and just hang in there and just keep offering yourself that self-compassion of just like we are all doing the very best we can with what we what we have as far as our resources as far as our energy as far as our motivation as far as you know all the things that we have to give so so yeah just extend that grace to yourself thanks for coming and thanks for taking the time to join us today appreciate it thanks all right we'll talk soon sounds good Thanks so much again to Heather for joining us today. I know that we all long to be the best parents as well as the best we can be in our work. And I really appreciate Heather jumping in with us to look at how we do both without feeling like they are at odds with one another. Check out the show notes on our podcast webpage to get a recap of what we covered in this episode and to connect with Heather's work with families. I hope you loved today's episode, and if you did, please continue to share our podcast with those you know as we continue to work at supporting those of you on the front lines. Let us know how you're doing, questions you have, or feedback about the show. You can find me on social media at Lindsay A. Foss or email me at support at thrive-life.ca. My contact info is always in the show notes on our podcast webpage. I also want to give another reminder that our Self-Care Dare five-day challenge is reopening for registration today. So if you missed it the last time we ran it, I hope you'll join this time around. The last time we ran the Dare, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive, and I'm really looking forward to diving in again. So check it out. Thanks for joining us today, and until next time, stay safe.